Chafee's Looking Upstream, a conversational podcast of humanness, community, and well-being rooted in Chafee County, Colorado. I'm Adam Williams. Today I'm talking with Gloria Esparza. Gloria adds a different element for the podcast than we've had before. She is an 18-year-old high school senior and a youth advisor through Chafee County Family and Youth Initiatives. I am grateful for this conversation because we get to hear a perspective that I think we collectively tend to overlook or at least give less attention to. It's that of someone young, a teenager, someone of Generation Z. Gloria and I talk about her upbringing in a home with three generations and two languages, and she's got me feeling envious of the fun that she and her cousins have had there, especially when playing a souped-up version of a childhood game that I will bet is familiar to you. It's Cops and Robbers, at a level I did not know existed. We talk about teen mental health and how that has hit closely for Gloria and has inspired her college and future plans. We talk about generational issues, like communication and understanding. For those of you who are parents, like I am, or grandparents, this conversation might give us glimpses into what the teenagers in our lives are thinking and needing. As an athlete who has gone through multiple significant injuries, Gloria already has experienced something that a lot of us can relate to. How to figure out what we're about when something that's at the core of our identity gets ripped away from us. In her case, that was her identity as an athlete on the court and field, but we all have our own version of that who-am-I-now crisis that challenges us, with jobs, with relationships, whatever it is, right? The Looking Upstream podcast is supported by Chafee County Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's available on all podcast players. The show also airs at 1 p.m. Tuesdays at KHEN 106.9 FM Community Radio in Salida. Look for the monthly We Are Chafee column in the Chafee County Times and the Mountain Mail, too. Show notes, including links and a full transcript of this and all Looking Upstream conversations, are available at wearechafee.org. You can support the podcast by following and engaging with We Are Chafee Pod on Instagram. Enthusiastic ratings and reviews on Apple and Spotify they're greatly appreciated too. Okay, here we go with Gloria Esparza. Gloria, you're in your final months of high school, and I know you have college plans, and Mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, this is going to be a lot of change over the next several months. What's on your mind? How are you feeling about it? Um, overall, I'm really excited. I think it's going to be a really cool change and just something to jump into. But it's definitely um, a little bit scary. I'm not necessarily the first person in my family to go to college, but the first in a, quite a few years to go. And so kind of leaving my family and I'm going pretty far away is definitely nerve wracking. Knowing I'm going to get homesick and I can't just come home. So I don't know. You're going to be really far away. Why don't you go ahead and say where that is, why you chose that location and that school? I'm going to be in Hawaii at Hawaii Pacific University. Um, I chose that school because it's been on my mind since sixth or seventh grade. Um, and even if as my career paths changed, I think overall the school was beautiful. Went toward it last March, and I just fell in love with everything about the school, the campus, the area. And so overall, I think it's going to be a good experience. And there's so much to see in the world. Might as well start now. It's a big change from where we are at high elevation in the mountains. It's very dry. Obviously, we have snow and cold at this time of year. And then you're going to Hawaii with tons of humidity. You're surrounded by a massive ocean. Is that part of the draw for you? Are you excited about that? Or what do you think about that change? Um, I'm super excited. I love the snow. I love the mountains. But I think something new is always fun. And I love the ocean. It's one of my favorite things. I love to be in the ocean. I love to swim and love the water. And I've always wanted to learn to surf. So I think overall, it's just going to be a good change. Definitely a big change from where we're at right now, but a good one nonetheless. I was going to ask you about surfing because you're an athlete. You're a three-sport athlete in school. Uh, You know, so it seems like a logical question that, okay, you go there. Surfing is a thing. Is that something you're excited to do or maybe oh, some yeah. other sports or or just even scuba diving and things that I don't know if it's considered a sport, but it's definitely a very cool pastime. 
I'm looking to do everything, new stuff. I used to snowboard before I tore my ACLs. So I'm trying to get back into snowboarding and obviously going to Hawaii, try surfing. Probably won't be very good at it, but I'm definitely excited to try. Scuba diving, everything within the ocean. I love the water. I initially wanted to go into marine biology, and I still am super fascinated by the ocean. And so I'm excited to do all that kind of stuff. You were interested in marine biology, but then changed course. I I'm curious about what led to that. And, you know, you said you're still interested. So why is it you don't want to study that now? Um, I wanted to do marine biology for a very long time because I am allergic to everything under the sun, especially animals. And I grew up on a ranch. So for me, I always wanted to do something that had to do with animals growing up. I was like, well, I'll do this. I'll do that. But anything like being on a ranch or being a vet was just so hard because I'm so allergic to everything. And so initially I was like, well, why not just go in the ocean? You can't be allergic to those animals. They don't have any fur. So, you know, I was like, I'll just go into marine biology. Um, And I just love the idea of the ocean. I think it's absolutely incredible that we know more about space that doesn't belong to us than we do our own oceans. Um, And so I was like, okay, I'll do that. And then I got into my sophomore year of high school, took biology and hated it. Hated everything about it. I was like, "Why, why do I need to care about these fish? Why do I care about the size of their scales? That's dumb. And so from there, I kind of just realized that it wasn't necessarily what I wanted to do anymore. Um, And I had to switch gears and kind of figure out where where I actually needed to be and what I was called to do. Science was always a tough subject for me, whatever kind of science it was. And I don't know that that's actually what you're saying was that it was tough. I think you just found subjectively, it's like, uh, maybe that's not what I want to pursue in my life and career. But it's cool that you're still interested. You can go do that as a casual interest Mm -hmm. uh, by living there. So you grew up on a ranch. Mm -hmm. I'm curious what kind of animals you had around, what size ranch. You know, can you paint that picture for me of what it was like growing up there? Um, I think I like to say I had the best childhood known to mankind, and I don't think anybody can compare. Um, (laughs) I live on a ranch, and my cousins live on a ranch two minutes down the road, and my other cousins live on a ranch about ten minutes down the road. So we were all super close and super... In super family-oriented, I grew up knowing that if I needed flour to make a cake, my aunt had it if we didn't, and I loved that. Um, We have cows, horses, pigs, chickens, donkeys. We get random animals here and there. Like, we had a goat, but my grandpa's not huge on those ones because they don't do much. Um, But my aunt has other ones. She has, like, a pet cow that just roams the ranch, and we hang out with her, and she has four fainting goats. (laughs) Um, and they actually do faint right like yeah uh, yeah. that was our favorite thing to do is chase them around until they fainted (laughs) but overall it was really fun i think my favorite memory growing up on the ranch was just like when we got to play cops and robbers and we had all the four-wheelers and three ranches to go between so we would go everywhere and like play for real cops and robbers till 1 a.m and just kind of hang out i never had to worry about what was going on I knew I was safe, I knew who I was with, and I knew that there was always a house that I could go to. That is a seriously leveled up Cops and Robbers game. Mm -hmm. Because, of course, I played that too as a kid, but we're talking about only within a yard or two or three with neighbor kids. That's huge. Those ranches and and four-wheelers, and that's some serious play. We had four-wheelers and actual sirens and lights that we would use, and like the robbers could use whatever they could get the keys to. But we would take the keys to everything and put them in one location. So they had to rob the keys to rob the four-wheeler or the motorcycle or the golf cart. And the cops, we got like four four four-wheelers between all of us, and we had the keys to everything. And then jail was on a different ranch than like everything else. It was We we, we took it seriously. Wow. Yeah. No, that sounds like a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So let's go back to what you're going to study. Uh, since it's not marine biology, I know that it's psychology and sociology. I think you intend a double major, mm-hmm. but also a minor in American Sign Language. I think that we're going to get into some some deeper conversation about the psychology and sociology piece. So let's start with American Sign Language. I'm curious, what inspired you to want to learn that? Um, I am a pretty soft-spoken person, and I have been since I was little. Um, I like to tell people I sound like a little boy going through puberty, because I feel like <laughs> I sound like all the time. Um, And so when I was younger speaking up, it's just, it's not easy for me. I don't really get much louder than I'm speaking to you right now. And so I kind of took to ASL just because I thought it was cool. And I mean, those people can't talk, so they use a different form of language. And it always fascinated me. I thought that was absolutely incredible. And so growing up, I was like, this is kind of cool. So I took it up kind of as a hobby. I would watch YouTube videos and nothing crazy. But then when I 
got older and realized I could actually study that and kind of learn it, I think that would be awesome. I also think it's just a great um, resource to have going into psychology because I don't ever want to be the person that's like, oh, I can't take you because I don't understand you. And so knowing that I can speak English, I can speak Spanish, you know, one more to add to that just means I can help that many more people. And I just love that idea. That's incredible. Yeah. Especially when you are commenting on, I don't want to not be able to serve you and what you need simply because, you know, this language gap. And obviously for a lot of us, that is a language gap. Mm -hmm. I don't know sign language. So that's very cool. Uh, I want to ask you about the psychology and sociology piece and what it is you intend to do with that and maybe what led you there, of all things. You could have chosen anything in the world at this point, what you want to study, other than marine biology, since we've already covered why that's not happening. But why those those particular subject areas? I went into psychology after I realized I didn't want to do marine biology um, because I just realized it was something I was good at. I like talking to people and I like listening to them. I like hearing everybody's stories and where they come from. Um, and I have a lot of friends growing up who were very suicidal and very just like going through going through a lot. And so I did everything in my power to help them. And I was like, oh, you feel like this? Let me Google it. Let me figure out why you're feeling like that. And um, my sophomore year, I was like, man, I realize I'm good at this. Why why not just pursue it? Like, this is something people do for a living. Why can't I do that too? And since then, I just think it's been absolutely incredible to go down that path. Obviously, it's definitely a lot more difficult not t you know, talking to strangers rather than my friends. But I'm excited to continue going down that. Um, and then my end goal is to go into children and teen therapy and become a children's therapist. Okay, you mentioned your friends and feeling suicidal, and that's obviously a very big topic and, and a very significant one. I, I'm going to guess that you're aware that over the past however many recent years, headlines that, hey, mental health in teens is we're in a crisis state with this. I, I want us to be able to talk about that because I believe that you have insights that a lot of us, especially maybe those of us from older generations who don't necessarily understand why that is, uh, I think you have something to share. And I'll also say, as many people who listen to this podcast regularly know, I have two sons. One of them now is a teenager, and one is going to be soon enough. So this is a subject of interest and concern in our house from time to time, yeah. that we want to not be closed off from what's going on and, and why are these things uh, at a crisis point. Obviously, you can't represent all teens or all anybody, but just speaking from your own understanding and perspective – why do you think we're in the midst of a mental health crisis, if you agree that that's actually what, what is happening? I don't know if it's necessarily a crisis so much as now we have the media to publicize it. I think it's always been around and it's always been a thing, but it's just not something that was talked about nearly as much as it is now. I think a lot of it just has to do the way that we perceive ourselves now through the media. Um, kids, you know, are getting younger on Instagram, TikTok, Snapchat or whatever. And that leads to a lot of comparison and a lot of, oh, well, I want to be like this person. I need to be like this person. Well, my friend just went on a vacation and I didn't, so they're better than me. And I think that just tends to lead to a lot of, like, big feelings. And growing up, you know, you're dealing with a lot of big feelings in a really small body. And you just don't necessarily know how to handle it. And I think that's why it, just, it seems to be a crisis because we're able to publicize it a little more now. I do think it is definitely a problem, but I also think that has a lot to do with people just not wanting to talk about it or not wanting to admit that it really is a problem. I think a lot of people still have the like outlook that it's it's just it's in your head, which is kind of the problem. It literally is in my head. Um, and I just think it can be really difficult to deal with that kind of stuff. And, you know, as a kid, you're like, well, I don't know why I'm feeling like this. I don't even know what I'm feeling. And adults a lot of time will be able to dismiss that as like, well, you're growing up or I felt like that too. You're fine. You'll, you'll, you'll grow out of it. So I think that can be a big issue. I think there is a tendency, from, especially from older generations, to maybe look upon whatever's happening with younger generations and, and decide you're being soft. When I was that age, we toughed it out in this way or that right. way, whatever, and to be dismissive of it. And I think a lot of that also has to do with, as adults, maybe we're busy as part of it, but how much do we also know about our own feelings in the ways that you're mm -hmm. describing there because everybody told us tough it out you have to have grit and they wouldn't listen to us mm -hmm. so there there is this pattern maybe of dismissing it i'm curious about your take then on 
on what you're seeing maybe of us adults since I am, I'm of generation X. I don't even know what your generation's called. Is it Gen Z? Z? Okay. Uh, so there's a couple between us or at least one in the space between right. us. And I'm curious what your take is because so often we don't ask, right? I ask my kids things, but I think in general as adults, we find it very easy to not ask. And then like you're saying, headlines, we're talking about you, <laughs> but are we actually asking and then listening yeah. to you? I think that's the biggest problem is communication overall. Um, just listening to your kids and knowing that I may not be able to describe how I'm feeling, but I can tell you that I'm feeling something. And it can just, I think it'd be hard, especially as adults who were put through the cycle of, well, you're fine. I was told I was fine, so I don't see why you can't be fine either. And so trying to completely change that cycle of like, well, my mom told me I was fine, so I have to tell my kid I was fine. So like, it's definitely generational. And I think just somebody has to stop and be like, hey, we're going to change this. We're going to fix this. We're going to do something different. But it's definitely not just an easy thing to completely change and fix, especially because there are some times that it really is just, hey, you, you'll be okay. You know, sometimes it can be a little deeper. Somebody could have depression, but they could also just have had a really bad day. And I think the biggest way to start out with that is just to ask and let, and just listen rather than a lot of times people don't even want your input. They just want somebody to be able to tell. I had a crappy day at school today. My teacher did this. And a lot of times we don't say it because we want you to be like, well, did you ask your teacher to do no, I just want you to sit there and be like, hey, I feel you. I'm here for you. That does suck. Sometimes we just want that sympathy piece. We just want that, hey, I know you're there for me when I need you to be there. When I need, when I can't be stable for myself, I need someone else to be more stable for me. I think that's exactly the same for a lot of us adults too. Actually, probably all of us, just as humans. So when we tend to tell people things, I think it often makes the listener feel uncomfortable. And then they do. I've used this phrase on this podcast before. They try to fade, fight, or fix. They try to diminish the, the significance of it, maybe help you fight against it, or they want to solve it, right? Instead of just listen with a compassionate yeah. ear. Do you feel like, and I don't want to put you on the spot with your family here, but do you feel like that you have grown up with that being modeled for you, that compassionate ear when you need somebody to hear, hey, I've had a bad day? Um, I think 50-50. To be honest, I think my mom and I have definitely grown a lot in our relationship. Obviously, she's a younger mom. She had me when she was 20. So we're definitely closer. Um, I would say she's my best friend. And so I think I'm lucky enough to like be able to sit and be like, Mom, shut up and let me talk. But definitely seen with like my grandparents, who I also love, adore. I love being around them. But with them, it can definitely be like, well, you're fine. I don't understand. Stop talking. Like, they are very dismissive. Especially of like my mom's feelings and like a lot of stuff my mom goes through they're, they're very dismissive of her And so my mom and I have worked a lot on kind of fixing that being like hey mom I'm feeling like this just because of this. It's not a hit on you. It's nothing like that I just want to have a conversation. I want to talk about it I want to communicate with you and my mom and I have had a lot to work on through that but I think it's been with her especially very open and very like Okay, I'm gonna do my best to just listen. I'm gonna do my best to do this and just very like, hey, I know what I said back, like an hour ago was really wrong. I'm sorry. Let me let me fix that. Let me say it better. But it's also been like, I know my grandparents are definitely still very dismissive and very like hard to go through that kind of stuff. And so it can be 50-50. I think it depends on who I go to and the specific topic. You mentioned to me before that your grandfather, at least, he came here from Chihuahua, Mexico, mm -hmm. right? So I wonder if in his story there is some real challenge and some things that a lot of us maybe wouldn't understand. And when you're coming from that perspective and you're thinking, I've been through, and here's a whole list of all the hard things I've been through, you can make it through your bad day at school. Right. And well, how about, let's talk, let's talk a little bit more about the family, because I think with that uh, piece in your background, you grew up speaking Spanish in the household. Was that the only language being spoken? Um, until you for the most part, yeah. Um, now uh, we all speak English and Spanish, you know, bilingual household. Um, but when I was growing up, my aunt didn't speak a lick of English. Um, and my grandpa was learning English while my grandma was learning Spanish. Um, when they met, uh, she didn't speak any Spanish, she didn't speak any English. So that was definitely tough for them. Um, and Wait, so, sorry, what did she speak? She spoke English. And he spoke Spanish. Oh, I got you. I got you. Okay. I but, misunderstood that for a moment. So they each had their own language, mm -hmm. but then they didn't. So how did they come together in that? What have you heard from stories or observed in that process? Um, I I don't know the full story, but they've been married now for like 50 years. 
they're my ride or die. Like I, when I look at, oh, who do you want to be? Like my grandparents. Um, he was he came here when he was twenty ish, and my grandma had just graduated high school, and something I don't actually know exactly how they met or anything, but I know she grew up in Nevada, and my grandpa was. I want to say he was trying to sell something, and she saw him and was like, huh. And slowly they kind of just got to know each other. She would, like, sneak out and kind of go see him. And eventually he was like, let's just get married. So they got married when my grandma was 19 and he was 21. They've been married since then. So I don't know the full story. I don't know everything about it, but, I mean, it worked for them. He, She taught him English. He taught her Spanish. And then my grandma's fluent in Spanish and my grandpa's fluent in English. That's incredible. And it was a learning experience for you then. Uh, you mostly spoke Spanish, I think, when you were very little and then got into school, started learning English. So we have two languages, like you mentioned, American Sign Language. You'll be trilingual when you learn that. What is it that drives your curiosity to expand and learn and, and want to sit and listen and learn about others and just all these these ways that I think we're starting to piece together kind of who you are, and it's a courageous, curious person. I like people, um, of all, all people. I love stories, and I think everybody has such an interesting story to share. And I think it's so sad when somebody has a story to share that you can't understand. Um, and I also know growing up in a bilingual household that, you know, there were parent-teacher conferences that I had to go to with my aunt and sit and translate for her and all my cousins who had to translate for their mom because she didn't speak English. So they would go in and, you know, they would sit and be not only the student, not only the kid, but also the translator. And I think sometimes just that barrier stops us and prevents us from doing so much more than we can solely because you just don't understand. Um, And I just, I'm, I love listening to people talk, tell me everything about themselves, where they came from. And I think having more of a like diverse language can just open up who I who I'm able to talk to and listen to and help out obviously going into therapy I want to help as many people as I possibly can and just be in ear for even one more person that would always be the goal I think it's it's not uncommon the experience that you're talking about but it also is in the minority of like percentage wise of population that most of us we grow up one language it's english it's you know we're not part of that experience that you're describing where a kid might have to be the translator between teacher and parent or parent and everyone, right? You go to the grocery store, you know, it's because your family has learned English as well. Now you're able to go off to Hawaii and have that experience. Whereas otherwise, I wonder if you would feel pressure to stay near home because you are the go-between. Yeah, I know that's why a lot of my family is super close. Um, We're so tight-knit because at the end of the day, we all have each other. And I know that, like, none of them would go very far from family just because that's scary. Sure. And and I know, like, my grandpa, you know, he came here from Mexico. He has 12 siblings. And so, you know, coming from there, his his brother is my uncle, and they live five minutes from us and all that stuff because being away from what you don't know can be really scary. And I think not if I wouldn't have had the ability to learn more and all that, I don't think I would have been able to leave and go so far from home. You mentioned your ACL injuries. I want to go back to that because, well, first of all, I've never had a torn ACL. Uh, I have had friends who had, in at least in one case, a potential basketball career derailed from it. What was that like for you to deal with emotionally when, hey, I'm this three-sport athlete and now suddenly I'm not because I'm sidelined? Um, I always tell people that an injury is 20% physical and 80% mental. Um, I tore my first ACL at the end of my eighth grade year. And again, I'm a three-sport athlete, and that hit me harder than I could have ever imagined. Um, and it was in the middle of my of COVID. So it, second COVID hit, I tore my ACL, and I think I, I felt like I lost everything all at once. I had lost my athletics. I'm also a people person. I'm, I'm extroverted. Couldn't really go and talk to my friends anymore. I couldn't go to school and see them. And I just felt like I had lost everything. Um, I also couldn't get surgery within four months of tearing it because of COVID, and it wasn't priority. So I was on crutches for four months, couldn't go to physical therapy. And for me, I mean, I always thought I was invincible as an athlete. I have hurt myself. I've I've broken things, but I was always like, yeah, I'm fine. I remember I had a cast on one time. I completely took it off. 
because um, the doctor had put it on a little too loose, and I slid it off my wrist by putting on enough lotion so that I could play in the tournament that weekend because I was the starting setter for my middle school team, and I didn't want to not be there. And so it hurt, sure, but I was like, eh, it doesn't hurt enough to stop me. And I remember tearing my ACL, and it stopped me. I, w- I could not do anything. I couldn't walk. And I just think overall pain, I don't remember being in any pain. I tore my ACL and I tried to get up three times. My mom was in the bleachers and she was screaming at me to get up, keep going, get up, get up, because that's who we are. You know, you keep, you, you don't stop. We don't give up. And so I'm sitting there and I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know what's going on. And after I finally came off the court with my coach, sat down with one of the trainers at the school and she was like, you're, you're done for the tournament. At least you need to go get an MRI. And I was like, oh, you know, and my cousin, who is, she's a lot older than me, kind of like an older sister to me, had also torn her ACL, had all done this other stuff. So in the back of my mind, I definitely knew that that was a possibility. But I was like, no, I'm fine. I'll be fine by the next game, is what I told the trainer. She was like, I don't think you can. And I ended up trying to walk, and I fell on my face because I put pressure on it, and it completely, there was nothing to hold my leg anymore. And so it was that moment that I was like, man, I really am done. And I just, I don't know. I didn't know how to handle it, I don't think. It is a really, really difficult mental battle, especially coming back. Because I think people assume that you can, you know, do the rehab or whatever, but you can't get the sound of the pop out of your head. Mm. And so I would, like, stand on a court, and all I could hear was my, like, knee popping over and over again. And I was like, mm. I still struggle to do little things like diving, jumping, and it's now a lot more of a thinking game than it was before. Like, before, it's instinct. Oh, there's a ball, jump, get it. Oh, dive on the floor, do this, do that. And now I have to be like, okay, ball's coming. I have to one, two, step, jump, up, land, land. Do I feel okay? Is my knee brace on enough? Is it tight? Like, I had such a thinking process now because I think mentally you just hit this block of, like, it happened once. And for me, it happened twice. And to each leg. And so for me, I was like, man, I'm done. Like, it happened two times. Who's to say that it's not going to happen again? Who's to say that I don't step on that court again and I'm screwed? How long was rehab for each time? Um, The first one, obviously a little longer because I couldn't get surgery. Typical ACL rehab is about eight months. Um, from so that's surgery. taking you out of your – like, you're, you're a three-sport athlete. That's taking you out of a lot. Every single sport. Uh, my eighth grade year, obviously COVID hit, so sports was very different. Um, it was kind of like we didn't have normal seasons. We didn't have anything normal. So that was hard. Um, I came back my freshman year, and uh, they switched the season. So basketball was before volleyball, and I ended up tearing my re-tearing my meniscus my freshman year. After I had like gotten the clear, the go-ahead, I re-tore my meniscus and was out again. So I didn't have a freshman year of sports. And then this ACL, um, which was my right one, been, it was supposed to be an eight-month recovery. I told my doctor to suck a butt, and it was a six-month recovery. And I was good after six months. I kind of got the clear, but he told me to be careful, be aware, and I was not. I didn't listen. And so now I'm actually probably at a little over a year still going to rehab and all that because I re-injured it after the six months. What did you learn from that piece of things where you Apparently didn't listen? Apparently Because okay. I did the same thing the first time. Okay. He was like, hey, it'll probably be longer because you have a lot of built-up scar tissue that we have to get out of there. And I was like, but you're saying I'm good. What, what I heard is I can play. I was like, yes, but you have to be careful. And you can run at 30% for so long. I mean, there's a lot of rules coming back from an ACL tear. And all I heard was, you're good to go. I was not good to go. And... I don't know. I think a lot has to do with, I just don't, I found a lot of my identity being an athlete, being that three sport athlete. And so losing that, I just didn't know who I was anymore. So everything in me was like, I have to do everything to get back because I don't know who I am not on the court. Right. Right. How did that go over at home when, you know, did your mom then with you, of course, she learned what the injuries were. And then did you have the support and things that you felt like you needed there? Or did you also feel like, well, I can't help around the house and do those things. And now people feel like I'm, I don't know, quitting on them. I think it was a little bit of both. I definitely had my family who was very, they're very like, very supportive of me and good about everything. And so it it was good to know that. But I just felt so useless sitting all day. But like, 
I knew that if I would stand up and try and walk, I would be in excruciating pain. I was, and I also don't like taking very many meds. I'm very like, oh, if I don't need it, we'll see how long it takes before I'm dying and debilitated. So they gave me, you know, strong dose of meds and I just refused to take them. So I'm sitting on the couch every day for like two months. And I'm just like, this is the worst. And my mom's a single mom. And so, you know, I've got two little sisters who I'm like, okay, but they need to do this. They need to do this. And like their schedule, their routine is like ingrained in my head. And I just always wanted to make sure I could do something for them to help them. And so when I tore my ACL, I literally just, I felt useless. I was like, I don't, there's nothing for me. I can't walk. I can't go downstairs and do laundry. I can't get my sisters where they need to get. I can't, like, I cannot do anything. And I think it just hits you when, you know, I have, you have no injuries. You don't want to do the dishes. You don't want to do laundry. And then I tore my ACLs and I would give anything to just do a chore. Like, (laughs) I would have given anything to just sweep the house because I just felt like I was sitting on the couch doing absolutely nothing all day. And it was awful. This is a very relatable experience, I think, for any of us, because if we've lost a job as an adult or something, you know, it's, well, who am I now or how am I providing and, and participating in my family or in my life or with whoever? Uh, so I think that's very uh, relatable and easy to understand what you're talking about and the challenges mentally and emotionally when this thing that we think we have in our life that's such a core piece gets taken away, what do we do now? So I'm curious. For you, I, I'm guessing it was to get back into sports and things like that. But was there any other component where you were thinking about that question? Well, who am I now? What do I? What is it I need to focus on? And maybe that's preparing just academically for college or to be there for your friends. Like you said, they were having some yeah. struggles. So how did you approach that? If you thought of that question, I don't want to put words in your mouth. You know, did you think about well, what do I do with this time now, and who am I now? I definitely never took out the aspect of being an athlete I never was like oh, I'm never gonna be an athlete again um in my head I was I always am and always will be an athlete that's who I am but I had to look at it from a different angle um I also kind of explored other hobbies I love to write I write a lot of poetry and I say big feelings bring on good words so I wrote a lot of poetry during that time um and I also just learned to be a teammate outside of being the one on the floor I learned to sit on the bench and say, hey, you're good. We'll get the next one. I learned how to be an encourager and a positive just role model on the bench and not just on the court. I knew that my presence could be used regardless of where I was at, and I just had to learn how to expand on that. Um, And so I think even now I'm able to be that kind of person who can just sit there and be like, hey, yeah, you missed a shot. Who cares? It's one shot. At least you get to play. And so even now as I'm coming back and I sit on the bench a little more than I would like to, I think I just I took on more of the role of being there for my teammates in a way that they they can vent to me. If you have you feel like coach isn't doing you right, come vent to me about it. You feel like you're just need something. I got you. I'll talk to you about it. We can get through this. Um, And I don't have to be on the floor for my name to be known. I can be on the bench and still make that impact and still be that positive voice and that influence. I think that's a really key takeaway, something that you've learned in that that an awful lot of people might not. You know, they might be so much into kind of the self-pity or, you know, just feeling bad about what they're missing out on and how they are not able to contribute. So that's that's really that's a really significant learning there, I think, that's going to serve you later, as all our lessons do. I want to ask you about the state of the world kind of thing. I don't know how much you pay attention to news and stuff like that, but given environmentally, obviously coming through COVID, there's kind of a big shock for all of us in our life experiences. That's something I hope we don't have to experience again. Uh, We have politics, we have societal, you know, social issues at play. I wonder from your perspective, if you're aware very much of, of those things going on throughout your youth, if you have a perspective as you're about to head out into the world, a college student, and then, you know, a young adult out in the world. Are you optimistic about it? Are you concerned about it? How are you feeling about what's happening in the world around you? Um, I don't know. It's kind of a loaded question. It's hard to like answer. I think personally, I don't pay attention to politics and all that kind of stuff as much as some kids my age, just because I don't want to. Like, I just have other things I'd rather focus on than certain things i definitely know like oh who's our president and stuff like that but i definitely don't have a huge political stance but overall optimism and stuff for the future i'm optimistic for my future um i'm also really religious though so i think a lot of that comes from god's got me god's got it 
I'm not going to worry about it. I'm not going to stress. Um, he's brought me this far. He's going to keep taking me that far. So I don't think necessarily, like, it's optimistic for everything. I think we have a lot of issues that are like, oh, my goodness, like, what's going on in our world? What is happening? And definitely have my stance on a lot of stuff like that. But I just know that in the future, when I need to worry about it, I will. Right now, I have no desire to sit there and, you know, be like, oh, I need to worry about Israel and all this other stuff. I always have my stance and I'll talk about it and I love to learn. And if people want to talk about it, I'll learn about it. I'll educate myself and we can. But there's other things that I would kind of like to focus on opposed to the negatives of our world. Because I think there's a lot of positives that we don't necessarily shed as much light on. And I try to focus on that. I agree. And I think that's a, a great perspective. And it gets to be pretty difficult, I think, for an awful lot of us adults who uh, maybe have an ingrained pattern where it's like, oh, the the stressors in life, you know, yeah. what's, what's, what's going wrong, what's difficult. So I'm curious then what you think some of those positives are that you, you know, that you're paying attention to in the world and that you think ought to have more light. Let's give them light right now. What's what's going on in the world that, or even just in your life or whatever, that is the positive that you're focusing on, the things you're grateful for? Um, I'm graduating. I think that's freaking amazing. I have friends who are graduating who I didn't think were going to graduate. Um, I, have friend, I have a friend who's pregnant and have a baby in April, and I think that's absolutely incredible. I love babies. Um, I just, little things like that that I definitely try to shed more light on than, like, huge things. Um, but definitely big things, too, like, we're rebuilding from the fires in Maui. I think that's really cool and how big a community can come together after something so tragic and how quickly the community was to come together after something like that happened. Um, I just, I, I definitely keep tabs on that, obviously, because that's where I want to go to school. Just, it was, it was really significant in how it impacted everybody and how quickly everybody was like, well, can't do anything about it. Let's all just, let's come together. Let's do it. Let's fix it. And so stuff like that, I try to focus on the littler parts of life just because I know when I focus on really big parts, I stress myself out. And I already have a lot of big stuff, you know, I'm going to college and all that. So I try to focus on my, my friends and the people around me. I like to focus on their successes. Their successes always make me a lot happier and a lot more optimistic. I wonder if your religion is part of that. And is that a family kind of... Um approach that gratitude and that focus on the positive and that belief that things are working out and we can accept what is and move forward in a positive way regardless of what it is um i did grow up in a very religious family we're all christians so i grew up a christian um and i would be lying if i said that didn't have an impact on my faith now um but i definitely did not grow up in the family that was like well you have to go to church you have to believe in god my family's big on find him the way that you need to find him and so i think that was a big part of also how I grew up religiously. Um, I knew from when I was little, obviously, well, I have to believe in God because that's what my grandma says and what grandma says is right. But as I got older, it definitely was different and I kind of had to learn for myself. I would think when I turned 13 or so is when I really was like, I'm going to believe in God from what I want to believe. Um, because I tore my ACL. I didn't really have much to look at. I didn't know where to go. And I was like, you know what? If there's a God up there, I'm just going to talk to him. And from there, I think that just opened a lot of, even if there isn't a God, I know that I'm not losing anything by believing in one. And I personally think it's making me a better person. And I'm able to look at the bright side of things. And I'm able to just sometimes put things off because I know I cannot contribute to certain things in life. I can't fix specific problems that I know I wish I could. But I know I can sit there and be like, you know what? God's got it in his hands and whatever his plan is, is going to come through in the way that it needs to. And so I think my family definitely contributed to it a good amount just because we did grow up religious. But it was also a journey that they were like, hey, if you want to be religious, you find that. You have to find God for yourself. So I'm really grateful for that because I think had it been a very forceful thing, I probably would have veered away from religion just in a in spite, obviously. I think that's huge. Uh, and that is a difference maker. And that's very cool that you see that. I've had so many of these conversations over the years with people who there is a common theme of this was put on me, so I turned away from it. And so the idea of giving space to find who you are and what those relationships and spirituality and things, faith are in your life, I think is really significant. And and you have found how to connect that to your own experience, like you're yeah. suggesting with the ACL so I also want to talk about you are involved as, I would say, a leader 
for other teens with the fifth quarter teen council. Is that right? Yeah. Will you tell us what that is and what it is you do with that? Um, so I'm the paid youth advisor through Family and Youth Initiatives here, which is run through the Department of Human Services. Um, one of our programs is fifth quarter, which is a teen council in the high school. Um, our overall goal is to provide activities, events where we provide things to do that don't involve substances. Obviously, in a small town, it can be really hard to do anything other than drugs and drinking because, you know, you can't, oh, you want to go to the mall? Oh, that's two hours away. You want to go eat something? What are we going to eat? Ponchos? Pizza? Or even a movie theater. Right. Like everything that like a lot of kids have the experience to do, we don't, we don't have that. Especially freshman year through like junior year. I mean, you don't even have your license. So then it's like, hey, mom, can you take me here? Can you? And a lot of kids don't want to inconvenience their parents constantly. by being like, well, can you take me to his house? Then from his house, we need to go to this place, then to this place. Like that can be a really hard thing. Um, and in fifth quarter, we obviously, we noticed that was a thing. And so I can't tell you, I've only been part of the group for about two years now. Um, I think it started, I want to say almost like six years ago. Um, and the whole idea is fifth quarter is the fifth quarter of the night. So we usually do events after um, a football game, a basketball game, because there's four quarters of football, then you go to the fifth quarter of the night. And so we do things. Um, our biggest one, our biggest turnout is always Mount Princeton night, where we have free admission for everybody at the high school to come to Mount Princeton for about two, two, two and a half hours. And we bring mocktails, because we can't have cocktails. And we just to say, hey, come hang out and realize that we can all hang out with each other, be around each other and have fun without having to do these substances and having to rely on, oh, there's a party, you know, I'm going to go, I don't want to drink, but like, that's all I can do. Especially when you go with friends who are, you know, bigger partiers or drinkers and, you know, you go with them, you feel a lot of that peer pressure to go in and be like, well, she's drinking and she's drinking, can't be that bad, I'm just going to do it anyways. And so we're trying to veer away from that because we have noticed a rise and all that kind of stuff. And so we're trying to, you know, provide people with like, hey, we can do other things. We can still have fun and we can still do stuff and we don't have to be drunk or high to do it. What do you think the reception has been to that? Like just based on, I don't know how many people are coming or what the feedback is or the joy people are having together or, you know, that connection. Um, it's not great. Honestly, I wish I could say it was like this crazy, incredible movement. It's not, I think high school students are not very susceptible to stuff like that. Um, being one, I know that there are things that happen. I'm like, Oh, shut up. You're annoying. And I think that's how a lot of people see fifth quarter is like, oh, that's so annoying. We don't want to do that. Well, they're going to have adults and chaperones. I'm, I'm 16. I don't need a chaperone. So um, it can definitely be frustrating going into that, knowing that we're trying to bring, you know, our whole student body to it. But our turnout's usually between 50 kids. Sometimes we only have 20 kids. Um, but I would say that's actually pretty decent. That might be more than I was picturing, the 50. I don't know. Yeah, and so we sometimes we have events where five kids show up, 10 kids. Sometimes we have 50. It just depends on the event, how much we promote it. But in our book, one kid showing up is a positive. And we get the word out there, and we are obviously always trying to improve, and we're trying to incorporate more people into our group so that we can hit more of a diverse community of people obviously you know I can get to the athletes but I can only get to the athletes I don't talk to the band kids or the theater kids as much as somebody in theater would so we always try to expand out and kind of get the word out to every kind of group at our school and we just we hope we're the best I think quality of connection definitely has at least as much value if not more than quantity of connection so if you had 50 kids there okay that's great but are all 50 really engaging with it and creating these bonds and, and friendship around this idea, you know, if you reach that one kid, those five kids, that is impactful. Yeah, I think it's really cool that we even get the opportunity to do it at all and that the community is really supportive of it. Even if sometimes the high school kids are like, oh, that's annoying. You know, I just know that we still get people to come. And I think that's absolutely incredible. I think just what we're trying to spread, especially, I mean, what do we do? We did a poker night. Um, couple months ago and that had a great turnout we had about 20 or so kids come and I mean we only had three poker tables so we couldn't really do much other than that and it had just been absolutely incredible to see that many kids come and just kind of play poker and maybe with people that they don't normally hang out with and I definitely know that people afterwards we've always gotten good feedback it's never been like oh this was terrible so when people do come and they show up we get good feedback and I know that I've made a lot of closer friends through fifth quarter and gotten the ability to learn more about other people just because I hung out with them because they weren't on my team and I got to see what they do outside of school and stuff. 
do you feel like you have your finger on the pulse of the other activity that's going on uh, with students? Well, let me, let me put it in this light. When I was in high school and when my older brothers were drinking and we lived in a rural area, so partying out in the woods, that was the thing. Now, I wouldn't say that we had much for drugs, hard drugs anyway, marijuana. We didn't have a lot else. But when my one of my brothers I talked to several years ago, because his kids at the time were teenagers in high school, and they were going out to so-and-so's cabin. Um, and so, of course, I naturally thought, oh, yeah, they're going to be drinking and stuff. He said, you know what? They actually don't. I don't know what it is, but the kids, you know, they're they're just not into that like we were. Maybe it's because we felt the need for defiance in that way. I don't know about his kids. So in that context, do you feel like that's really a prevalent behavior right now with drinking? Is it more on the drug side? How, how big of a thing are we looking at that those of us who are parents in the community might not really quite know? Um, it's Honestly, it can be a pretty big thing. I think it's a lot bigger than people actually realize. Um, I don't drink or do anything, so I don't go to things like that, but I know of them. I am still an athlete. I'm still part of the what you could consider the popular group. So when things are going down, I know it's happening. I don't I don't know. I think it just depends on the group of kids. There are definitely those kids who are like, no, we're not going to drink. I know when I hang out with my friends, we literally just go and we hang out. My best friend and I will go and we'll sit in the car and we'll listen to worship music. That's our, that's our time, like good, good fun time. But it is definitely still a problem that I see. Um, I don't know if it's necessarily as heavy on the drinking now as it is smoking weed because we live in Colorado, it's legal, um, and it's a lot more normalized now, as well as like vaping and stuff like that. And it's high school, kids are going to try what they're going to try a lot of times, so I think it's bigger than people would imagine, but it's also not like every single kid on the street is dealing drugs, like it's not that bad. So I guess it'll just depend on how you look at it. Sure. You also, I want to point out, co-hosted... We are Chafee's Dinner and a Movie event in Salida not long ago. And I'm curious about your experience with that. Like, was that something you were nervous about? This is, this is a community event. I think there were well more than 100 people in attendance. Mm-hmm. I, I think I would have been totally floored with nerves and, and not wanting to do it if I were in your shoes. So I'm curious about that piece of you that's like, yeah, I will have the courage and step up to this thing. Um, I personally like public speaking a lot. It's not a very common thing, but I fell in love with it my junior year of high school. We did a really big presentation that we had to do on stage and hold a microphone. And I was super nervous about having to do that. And when we kind of started it, um, and then eventually presentation day came and I was like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. I just got to go up there and do, I know, I know my topic. I'm just going to do it. And as I started talking through it and like through the microphone, I realized that this is this is fun, and I had I had a great time, and I genuinely enjoyed it. Um, and so then, when I've had a, I had a couple people mention the event and kind of how they were wanting to get more youth involved and all this other stuff. I mean, that's literally what I get pay, get paid to do is put youth input within our community. And so when they were like, "Hey, would you be willing? Would you be interested?" I was like, "Absolutely." That's what I'm getting paid to do is to put my voice out there so that other youth can be heard through my voice. And so I was like, sure, let's try it. I would be lying if I said I was not nervous. I was like about to pee myself. I was like, oh my goodness, there's so many people here. And if I mess up, I'm like misrepresenting all the youth and the entire history of the world. Like I, and I put a lot of pressure on myself. I was like, this is, I'm so nervous. I could mess up. I could do this. It was also on a, a topic that I didn't know anything about. Like there was, um, I had to introduce some groups that I had no idea what they even were so I had to read directly off a script that I didn't write and so trying to put my own spin on that and still make sure I'm getting the right information out and everything was still it was definitely nerve-wracking it was challenging but I think in the best way possible um I love challenge I love trying to see what I can do and that's why I took the job to begin with was to put my voice out there and get opportunities like that it's definitely nerve-wracking definitely very scary but it was a really great opportunity I was going to ask you about your willingness to step up to new experiences because it seems like that's part of, I don't know if it's fun, if it's just if you're looking down the road and saying, well, this is all going to build my character. You know, I don't know how you approach it. How would you say you're you're motivated to try on new experiences and, well, like that, get on stage and, and talk to a crowd? I think everything honestly goes back to my original, like, I just want to help as many people as I possibly can. Um, I think the more experiences that I can get, the more I go through certain things, then I can relate to more people. Um, and my, I'm 
always like the quote-unquote helper friend and so when kids are like oh I know I need to I need somebody to talk to they're gonna come to me and so I think being able to go out and learn more and experience more gives me more to be able to talk about with other people um and I never want to not be able to talk to certain people about certain things because I don't know anything about it I think so I think just that and um I just got interested in this specific like jumping into the community last year when I met my best friend through the high school, she was the paid youth advisor last year. Her name is McKenna St. John, so she's literally the best thing on the planet. Um, <laughs> but she was the paid youth advisor. She did all this kind of stuff. And she was like, hey, you should take my job when I graduate. And I was like, I couldn't be you. I'm not you. You're better than me. And she was like, why? What makes me better? So she encouraged me to do all that. And I kind of shadowed her all last year through all the events that she did and all the stuff that she was able to do. And slowly I was like, man, this is actually kind of cool. And she's able to talk to like adults and people listen to her and I thought that was really cool and so I think that alone was enough for me to be like you know what what do I have to lose if I go and talk and I mess up it is what it is I'm just gonna try I appreciate that and you know what this podcast today this conversation was a new thing for you as well and you mentioned this idea of you talking and sort of maybe feeling like oh I have to represent the broader youth voice and I really have tried not to put that on you because I think that's such an unfair burden. And at the same time, I'm asking questions that it's like, well, you kind of are. I, you know, you are the youngest person, the youngest guest to appear on this podcast. And we now will have talked with people who are ranging from 18 years, that's you, up to 96. And so I think you do have for better and worse, an important piece here where you are representing so far that much younger perspective. I'm curious, this was your first experience with podcast. How have we done? How do you feel about it now? I think I feel pretty good. It's been a pretty basic conversation and I'm good at talking. So hopefully it sounds good when other people listen to it, but I think it's been pretty good. Well, I'm glad that you came here and you were willing to do it. I appreciate the conversation and getting to hear from you, Gloria. So thank you very much. Yeah, it's great. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast. If our conversation here today sparks curiosity for you, you can learn more in this episode's show notes at wearechafee.org. If you have comments or know someone in Chafee County, Colorado, who I should consider talking with on the podcast, you can email us at info at wearechafee.org. We invite you to rate and review the We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you use with that functionality. We also invite you to tell others about the Looking Upstream podcast. Help us to keep growing community and connection through conversation. Once again, I'm Adam Williams, host, producer, and photographer. John Prey is engineer and producer. Thank you to Cahan 106.9 FM, our community radio partner in Salida, Colorado, to Heather Gorby for graphic and web design, to Andrea Carlstrom, Director of Chafee County Public Health and Environment, and to Lisa Martin, Community Advocacy Coordinator for the We Are Chafee Storytelling Initiative. The We Are Chafee Looking Upstream podcast is a collaboration with the Chafee County Department of Public Health and the Chafee Housing Authority, and it's supported by the Colorado Public Health and Environment Office of Health Disparities. You can learn more about the Looking Upstream podcast and related storytelling initiatives at wearechafee.org and on Instagram and Facebook at wearechafee. Lastly, until the next episode, as we say here at We Are Chafee, share stories, make change. <laughs>